We are in week 13 of a 13-week series, uh, so we're wrapping up this week, a series called Doctrine, and we've looked at the, kind of the major doctrines in the Bible from Genesis now uh, to, to Revelation, and we're looking today at the kingdom of God and what that means, and so that's kind of where we're landing. So turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you're new, uh, I don't usually sit on a stool when I teach, but uh, about seven weeks ago I had knee surgery, and, uh, and, and I'm good, I'm walking, but I just wasn't ready for five services yet. So um, there, there will be a moment in the middle of the sermon where, where I'm going to stand up. It's very dramatic. Um, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. Um, it'll be, it'll be uh, a miracle. So look forward to that. Um, Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, the kingdom of God is kind of this big topic, a broad topic, a lot of different ways to go on it, um, and so I thought, let's talk about the kingdom of God like Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, so um, we're going we're gonna to look at Mark 1, 14 and 15, just look at those two verses tonight, and uh, be nice and short and sweet and get to the baptisms. So Mark 1, verse 14, uh, Mark has introduced us to the gospel by talking about John the Baptist, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, um, and then uh, the temptation of Jesus. And then verse 14 says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So John the Baptist, um, good guy, but he uh, talked about the, the king, and the king was having an incestuous relationship with his niece, uh, which is all kinds of gross, and John the Baptist just said, hey, that's all kinds of gross. And so um, the king being the king uh, arrested and soon beheaded John the Baptist. So after that happened, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, Jesus's ministry was done largely, completely in Palestine, kind of modern day Israel. Um, spent a lot of time in the southern part in Judea, whereas Jerusalem and Bethlehem, but at this point is in Galilee, which is on the north side um, of Palestine, and in the middle is Samaria. Okay, so just a little bit of geography for you. It says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying. Now, Mark summarizes the message of God um, in, these, in this one verse, four ideas that Jesus communicates. I just want to break down these four ideas, give us kind of a vision of what the kingdom of God looks like, how we're to respond to the idea of the kingdom of God, and then, uh, and then we'll dunk a bunch of you, okay? So he starts by saying, the time is fulfilled, Right? In Greek, there's two words for time. One is chronos, and that's where you get your chronological time. It's the time on a clock. That's not the kind of time that Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, well, it's five o'clock, time for ministry. Um, this, the other word is the word kairos, and kairos means um, a, a moment in time or an event in time. Right? So he basically says, Everything has been leading up. The time has been fulfilled. All the things that have been leading up to this moment have finally culminated. And he says, I'm here now. The time is fulfilled. So uh, about five weeks ago, my, my second child was born, a son named Cole. And, uh, and he's, he's pretty good. Uh, but there was a moment after nine months of, of you know, process of birthing stuff, of growing both baby and mother, um, a lot of emotions, mostly the mother, some crying. And then there came this moment where I got a phone call. And when your wife's eight and a half months pregnant and has already gone into preterm labor and all this, all this drama, um, you, you think every phone call could be the phone call. And so she, she calls me and I pick up the phone. And she goes, the time is fulfilled. The boy is at hand, right? I knew, I knew. She's a pastor's wife, so she only quotes scripture, right? Like, that's just. <laughs> um, 
She didn't say that, but I, I wish she had, and I've, and I've contracted with her that she will say that for every subsequent child. So it creates just this magic moment, the time is fulfilled, right? So um, th this, this is the idea that all of these things have led up to this moment, this time, the time has come for something. Right? So Jesus very dramatically comes in and says, the time is fulfilled. The first thing's out of his mouth. Now, what, what was fulfilled? What time was fulfilled? Simply, this was fulfilled. The Old Testament was fulfilled. Starting back in Genesis chapter 1, the clock started ticking when God created everything perfect, just as God intended for it to be. The clock started going. This idea was birthed. The, the universe was birthed. And this idea that there could be perfection in the universe. And the people there in that perfection had perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with creation. There, the clock started ticking because now as we experience life without that perfection every single one of us has a longing for that every single one of us has deep within us a knowledge that that did exist that should exist that there is that potential and so we strive for it Right? We strive for the perfect relationship. This, this, this striving that we all have within us is largely responsible for the whole genre of, of romance movies, right? Romantic comedies have their birth in this desire, creation lost, because we all go, there, there must be this perfect relationship. I, I use a slightly feminine voice because I think it's appropriate. Um, the, we, we all think that there must be this, this beautiful relationship with this guy. There's letters, and, and then I'm sick later in my life. Or, 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 or maybe um, I, we're in Paris, and, and, and we just fall in love, and he, he's a jerk, but then he comes back. I, I, we all just long for this perfect, ideal relationship. It's, it's the only reason Matthew McConaughey has a job, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> it, that's it. It's that deep longing within us for something better. Something that tells us there, there should be a better version of this world. It started right there in Genesis 1 where God created everything perfect. Very quickly, there was rebellion and there was brokenness and there was sin and there was this fracture of that perfection. And then the rest of the story is a roller coaster. It's a story essentially of your Old Testament of the people of God rebelling against God walking away from God, pursuing other things, God's judgment coming, them responding and, and seeking out to God, repenting, God being merciful and gracious as always, lifting them up, restoring that relationship. And it's just this, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And woven into that story are these moments where the prophets speak about a life that is to come. And they say it's not supposed to be this way and it's not always going to be this way and there's going to be one who comes, there's going to be a king, there's going to be a redeemer, a savior, a messiah in their language that will come and make it right again and what was will be again. And so this longing is, is seated deeply in the hearts of all people. And so when Jesus walks in and says, the time is fulfilled, this, this marks the beginning of the climax to this story. I mean, this, this story, like, like every story, ha has a buildup and has a climax and has a resolution. I mean, it's just every story since the beginning of the world has been trying to tell a better story than the true story. So every story, every movie you've ever seen, every story you've ever read has this moment, this time.
time is fulfilled, the climax is about to begin kind of moment. So my daughter, I have a three-year-old daughter as well, and she's, uh, um, like most three-year-olds, she has this God-given ability to watch movies over and over and over and over. Actually, let me back up on that. A Satan-given ability to watch movies over and over and over. And so it's, it's just one after another, and we kind of pry her off of one, and she clings onto another. And right now, she's on this movie called Tangled, right? It's, uh, yeah, uh, it, the first time it was kind of cute. Second time I saw some nuance. It was kind of funny. Third time was, it was deep. I, I, I cried a little bit. The, but after that, it's, it's, it's just now become awful. And so um, she, she doesn't understand. She thinks the girl's name is Tangled. She doesn't understand her name's Rapunzel, um, which Tangled is just as good a name as Rapunzel. But um, she, yesterday, was, was going to a, a party. Her friend, in fact, Garth, the, our worship leader, his daughter and my daughter are like weeks apart. And she was going to her third birthday party, and it was a princess party, right? And so she's dressing up as a princess at this party. Now, I, I, will, I will admit there is a rumor going around that Garth appeared at the party in the form of dragon, unconfirmed, but, <laughs> but I have video. And uh, just watch, watch on Facebook for it. Um, but she's getting ready for this princess party. And I said, man, are you, are you a princess? She goes, no, I'm tangled, right? And I'm like, you're really confused now. And she's just, it, it, it's all about. But even in a movie like that, there, there's a moment where, where the, the good guy gets captured by the bad guys and, the, and Rapunzel thinks that her man turned his back on her. And this is, it's the beginning of the climax. It's when the story begins to, to go up and get really intense. Every story has this moment. And this is that moment. When Jesus finally shows up the scene after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people going, we long for it, we hope for it, and prophets going, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Jesus comes and says, the time is fulfilled. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter one. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Almost the same phrase that Jesus uses in Mark one, that God had a purpose, a plan set forth in the purpose of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And it was that uniting that is essentially the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says, the, t- the fullness of time has come, the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying in that moment, just like Paul, that at this moment, heaven and earth have joined together and, and, and they have been united in me. Right? So we look at this story and go, wow, this is, that's a pretty bold pronouncement. And it doesn't exactly line up with my experience of the universe. It doesn't seem like we are experiencing earth and heaven combined, unified. And and if this is, this is a huge letdown. I I figured heaven would be way better than this, right? So what, what could it mean when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand? And in various other places in the gospel says the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in your midst. So the, the kingdom of God is anytime and anywhere and through anyone that God's kingly reign is experienced fully and completely. That's the kingdom of God. 
anywhere that, that God's reign is experienced. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying that, listen, in me is united all of the earth and all of heaven, that Jesus himself was all man and all God. And yet, even beyond that, everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was a perfect reflection of the kingly reign of God. So literally, everything Jesus did and everywhere he was, that was the kingdom of God. People experienced the kingdom of God in and through their interactions with Jesus. So when Jesus would talk to people, he would talk to them like people would talk in the kingdom of God. And so he would talk to them, as they they say, two-handedly. So on the one hand, he would speak truth and call rebellion, rebellion, and brokenness, brokenness, and sin, sin. But at the other time, at other times, and sometimes in the same moment would speak grace and mercy and forgiveness as well that he wasn't all forgiveness and grace without any truth but he wasn't any all truth without grace he was both at the very same moment but he didn't just proclaim the kingdom of God he demonstrated the kingdom of God so as he went throughout his life he would see someone who was blind and he would heal them because in the kingdom of God there will be no blindness and he'd see a man who, was, who couldn't walk, and he would heal him. Because in the kingdom of God, everyone can walk. There is no sickness. There is no pain. There is no death. And so Jesus, in those moments, in very real ways, would kind of pull back the curtain of the kingdom of this world and display, like, this is how it should be. This is how it once was. It's how it will be again one day. And it's how it should be right now. And he would demonstrate the kingdom of God. At various times, he would pull a kid up on his lap and say, this is, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be like this little child because this child doesn't have pretense and doesn't have pride. It trusts its father. Now, I, I don't think Jesus expected us to take that metaphor too far because if you've been around kids, you know there's a ton of evil in those things. But, but <laughs> nonetheless, this was, this was his teaching tool, right? So the, Jesus, all the time, demonstrated the kingdom of God. Now, he just gave us kind of little pieces, little glimpses of it that, that we can look. If we studied through the Gospel of Mark, which we did last year, if we, we could look and, and see all of, this, all of these moments in his life where he over and over and over again displayed the kingdom of God. And we can put together a pretty good picture of, of what we have to look forward to, what the kingdom of God might actually look like. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us to his great campaign of sabotage. It's a really interesting kingdom that, that Jesus begins here. Right? And it's an interesting, interesting plan for a king. That he, that he shows up on this earth in a, in a town that, that makes Yuma look awesome right, um, which is hard, and, and it, he's, he's born in this little hick town in, in total obscurity, born in a manger, grows up in relative obscurity, has three years of good ministry where he doesn't travel much more than about 100 miles, doesn't write anything, doesn't, doesn't ever hold political office, never, never creates some great work, just, just lives and teaches and demonstrates the kingdom of God, gathers disciples, and, and here we are 2,000 years later in the kingdom of God that he began here in Mark 1 now numbers in the billions. I mean, it's incredible. 
He never aspired to some political office, never stormed the gates of the castle like many hoped or dreamed that he would, but started kind of this kind of the subversive kingdom by living out its values and teaching its values and people would hear about this new kingdom and, and be enthralled with it. Their, their heart's affections would be drawn to it. They, they'd say, there's a kingdom like that? There's a kingdom of God? And in that moment, Jesus brought about, inaugurated, as theologians say, brought about this, this new kingdom and, and does so with a level of authority that, that implies that this is something important that everybody needs to listen to. And it, for good reason, because it, it, for someone to walk into a town and, and say, the kingdom, excuse me, the time is fulfilled, that, that's, that's, there better be something good coming after that. He says, the kingdom of all kingdoms is at hand. Because the king of all kings has arrived. Okay, and so that, that's his good news. Now, this is the part where I stand up. Okay, oh, kingdom of God, the lamb shall walk, right? So Jesus comes in, and, and there is an implication that um, they, the people that he's talking to know what, a, know what a kingdom is, right? I mean, Jesus didn't invent kingdoms, didn't invent kings. They all knew what that was. And so he comes in and says, now there is a, a new kingdom at hand, and it is the kingdom of God, which um, there is some, there's some authority and there's some power to say, now you, you've got all your kingdoms, all, all your different things that you're doing and all the things that you're pursuing, but now the kingdom of the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer is here. You, you can't help but go, well, man, if that's true, uh, uh, may, maybe I don't believe it is true, but if that's true and there is a kingdom that's actually God's kingdom, that, that is probably the kind of thing you want to listen to. If something like that existed, you, you'd probably want to know about it. And so he says, the time is fulfilled. Everything has led up to this moment. The kingdom of God is at hand because I'm here and I am fully embodying, fully actualizing the kingdom right here where I am and everything I say and everything that I do. And he says, here's how you respond. Here's the right way to respond. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So here's why I had to stand up. The best way I know to illustrate repentance is this. Your life is headed in this direction. There is some chosen kingdom. There is some chosen end. There's some preferred future that you are longing for, that your, that your heart and your mind and your life are, are reaching out to, hoping for, that you go, if, if that could come about, if that future, and, and for the sake of our language, we'll go, that kingdom could come about, that's the future that I want. And so you kind of backtrack from there and go, okay, well, if that's the kingdom, then who's the king? That's my king. Now, I, I think for most of us, there's kind of just this general, we want luxury, stability, safety, kind of security, just a kind of an American dream kingdom, we'll call it. Some of us are more, more specific. Some of us who are a little more radical, a little more fanatic about certain things. Some of us would say, no, my kingdom is a liberal, progressive kingdom. And that's my hope. 
And that's my longing. And if, and if the world could only be that way where everyone has health care and, and the taxes are super high because that's good uh, and, and all, all those things and government takes care of everything and all that, that's my preferred future. Therefore, maybe the king is the president. Maybe the king is some other, um, some law that needs to be passed, whatever the case may be, right? But let's be honest, this is Arizona and we're in church. So your preferred future is a conservative Republican future. <laughs> And you go, no, 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 the, the, the preferred future um, will, will have really low taxes, but lots of war, and, and, um, and, and hey, everyone kind of fends for themselves, right, that, that kind of thing. And so you go, um, if, if that's my preferred future and that's my kingdom, then my king is some as yet unnamed, uh, well, it's probably Ronald Reagan, right? So um, let's, let's, let's be honest about that. Or if you're really idealistic and, and, and hopeful, it's like Ron Paul and some, some kind of crazy future. Um, so maybe your kingdom is a, a, a vision of a world without pollution. And you've got kind of an environmental bent to you and you go, man, wouldn't it be great if, if there was no pollution and all the owls could live at peace and the trees, were, were, they were hugging each other and, and it, was, it was just so good. And so my king is recycling, it's carbon tax, it's whatever, Ralph Nader, I, I don't know, I don't know what it all is. Um, it, it's, it's, that's my preferred future where none of us really shower and we just kind of, we wear weird stuff. So, right? I'm making some assumptions here. I think that very few of us have such a specific dogmatic future in mind. I think for the most of us, it's kind of a general future of safety and, and stability and a good job and a, and a good husband or a good wife and, and freedom, independence, own a home. It's the American dream, right? And, and that's the kingdom that you hope for and so the king that gets you to that kingdom is maybe money. Maybe it's a great job. Maybe it's some perfect person. Maybe it's, right? For, for, for all of us, there is some preferred future, and that is the kingdom that you long for, and there's a king that will get you there, and there's a set of values that kind of flow out of that kingdom, and then there's behaviors that those values beget in us. And so repentance looks like this. It's everything in our lives has been going this direction forever because, because of those values, because of that end, because of the behaviors um, beget that beget that, those values, we come to some moment where we say, you know what, actually, that's not the future that I want. That, there's something about that that's, that's actually kind of wrong. And I don't know what it is. I, and, and, and this happens for, for a lot of reasons. One is sometimes we get um, so close to that kingdom, so close to that preferred future, um, that we start to see holes in it. And we start to go, wow, you know what? That looked a lot better from a distance. And then may, maybe we get really close to that preferred future and we really see a vision of what uh, a progressive liberal or a conservative Republican kind of future might look like. And we go, wow, yeah, I, I think it solves these problems, but it actually makes these problems. And, and we kind of get disillusioned a bit with that, with that chosen kingdom. Maybe we get really close to the, the, the American dream and we see, man, that... I didn't realize how, how kind of self-absorbed that American dream is. 
There's nothing in it about self-sacrifice. There's nothing in it about caring for the poor. There's nothing in it about giving oneself to something greater. It's about safety and security and stability. I didn't realize how shallow that was. So sometimes, sometimes we just see in our kingdom that it wasn't quite what we thought it was going to be. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great line from Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So there's these, these deep longings within us. And we think that these, these other kingdoms can satisfy those longings. We think that those, those kings can, can accomplish those ends. But sometimes we get so close to the ends that we realize they're not quite what we thought. Sometimes we get so close to the king that we realize the king is maybe not as great as we thought he was. That maybe we start to wonder whether or not that king is actually powerful enough to accomplish the ends that he's set about to accomplish. Maybe, maybe we start to realize that all of these kings are asking us to sacrifice for them. All, all of these kings are asking us to give of our lives for, for their sake and their ends. And, and we start to go, well, you know what? A, I'm not sure you're powerful enough. Or B, you may be powerful enough, but I'm not sure I trust you. I'm not sure if you're good. I, I'm not sure if I can just give my life to you trusting fully that, that you will accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish without destroying me in the process. And then, and then for some of us, repentance comes in a moment where we have something else made known to us that we never knew existed. So may, maybe we're satisfied with that end and we've, we've done some kind of philosophical gymnastics in our own hearts and minds to um, kind of push down the longing for something better, and we've just kind of come to accept that, that this world is what it is, and, and its brokenness is just a natural part of, of life. And we've stopped longing for something better. We, ex- we go into relationships expecting them to break. We, we live our lives expecting sin to mess everything up and we just, we're all right with that. And then maybe for the first time in your life, someone paints a picture for you of a, of a better option, a more compelling kingdom with a more compelling king. A, a kingdom that, that ironically enough does all those other kingdoms better than they can. You looking for a kingdom that cares for the poor and the needy? In the kingdom of God, there will, there will be no poor and needy. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. That God fights for the oppressed and God fights for the poor. You long for a kingdom of, of justice. Long for a, a kingdom where, where wrongs are righted. There is no one more just than God himself who will bring about a day of judgment where he will right every wrong. You you want a kingdom of environmentalism? It's God's creation. And he will one day restore it all to its perfect intended 
exactly how it was supposed to be. Exactly what it once looked like. It will look like again. See, there, there is a kingdom, Jesus says. Listen, th- there is a kingdom of God, and it is a better kingdom, and it is a better king. And you know what? The closer we get to that kingdom, the funny thing happens. The closer we get to it, the more we love it. The more it proves itself. The, more, the, the fewer holes that it has. The further away, it does this weird thing, where the further you are away from it, the, the stranger it looks. And yet the nearer you draw to the kingdom of God, the more satisfied you will find yourself. But, but perhaps what's most, most important is that every question, every hesitation you've ever had about one of these kings will be completely and finally ended in this king. This king is more powerful than any king this world has ever known. And at the same moment, better than, more gracious than, more merciful than any king. Jesus is is a mixture of King Leonidas and King Triton all put together. That shows you my world, right? A little 300, a little little mermaid, right? So when you're the father of a three-year-old. He's every good king. I mean, every... Every story that's ever been told has just been trying to match the greatness of this story. Every king that's ever been spoken of has just been trying to match the greatness of this king. And so when Jesus says, repent and believe, he's saying, listen, your whole life has been going in this direction. Repent. Which the word repent literally means to have an afterthought where you realize that whatever you thought was true isn't true. So this is repentance. I just blew your mind when I did that, didn't I? <laughs> Every service, there's been an audible gasp. This is the only one that wasn't. It is literally going, I was wrong. Everything I thought to be true about the world is not true about the world. That kingdom is not the most ultimate kingdom. The values that that kingdom has are not life-giving values. The behaviors that come from those values are not good behaviors. They're behaviors that lead to brokenness and pain and death. I realize that now. And we turn from it. And then he says, believe the gospel. So here's what you do. I'm walking in this direction. Repent. Believe. That's all you got to do. Jesus loves you and you're done. Just believe the gospel. Now, the gospel has become kind of this junk drawer term. We use it a lot for a lot of things. You hear about the gospel a lot when you come here. It's, it's become used as a noun, an adjective, a verb. It's, all, it's everything now. So he, here's, here's the question that seems appropriate to ask in this moment. What does it actually mean to believe the gospel? What does it actually mean to believe the gospel? A couple things. One, very simply, it means believe that this story is true. And, and not just that it's true historically. I mean, that's certainly important. But believe that it is the truth. The, the true story about the world. The truth about human existence. The truth about human relationships. Believe that you were created in the image of God created uniquely and perfectly and lovingly. 
that, that you have sinned both willfully and because of your nature. Believe that, that God came to earth, became a man, was in flesh, that Jesus was all God and all man, that he lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should die. And on the third day, he was raised again, overcoming Satan, sin, and death. And not just that all that stuff is true, but that it's meaningful. That it, that it means something for you. It means something transformative for you. It means, if you believe it, that, that you are now adopted into the family, that you are a member of God's kingdom, that you are a member of the family, that you are, in biblical language, a son, because sons were deserving of a full inheritance of the Father. That, that you are a new creation, that you have a new identity and, and you begin to be a part of this subversive kingdom advancement by every day pulling back the curtain on the kingdom of this world and proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus did that by healing the lame, healing the blind. Now, you'll, you'll get to that, okay? If you're not doing that yet, that's fine. You're immature, I get it. What you can do is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's very simple. And in that moment, pull back the curtain and demonstrate to your neighbor, listen, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it was. This is how it will be. And this is how it should be today. Me loving you as I love myself. This interaction is a picture of the kingdom of God. And if you can, in that moment, when you, when you demonstrate the kingdom of God, say to them in a, kind of a low voice, the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> It'll go awesome. That, that's the role we play to demonstrate, to proclaim, to pull back the curtain on the kingdom of this world and go, there's something better. There's something more. Now, believing the gospel is not, is not just an intellectual exercise. The, the very idea of faith necessitates action, right? So um, I, I could tell you all day long that I believe that this chair can hold me. I could tell you about its um, masterful Swedish design. Um, I, I could tell you about the, the great materials that are used. I, I could tell you all day long, but if the most I'll do is like kind of lean on it, but I won't actually give myself to it, I won't actually put my full weight upon it, I don't actually believe it'll hold me. Now, whether that's because I doubt the structural integrity or I worry about the extra pounds I put on while I was on crutches, that's not something we need to talk about. Um, if I'm unwilling to give myself to it, do I actually believe, do I actually believe it would hold me? If I'm unwilling to, to let it do what it was created to do and what I have affirmed it can do, Jesus does the same thing immediately. Verse 16. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Jesus, walking down the beach, doesn't know these guys, sees two guys, and they're mending their nets, they're fishermen, and he goes, hey, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they go, all right. Fishers of men sounds weird. <laughs> Might as well see what that is. So, so they, just, they just go and follow, right? He walks a little bit further down the beach. There's two more fishermen. They're with their dad. And he, go, and he says, come, follow me. And they leave their dad, and they just come follow Jesus. They didn't ask, where are we going? Who are you? <laughs> What's your name, creepy Jewish guy? <laughs> Nothing. He said, follow me. And they went, all right. And they just followed him. There, there was something there. There was something in it. There was something that drew them to Jesus. What Jesus asks of these disciples, for the first pair, leave behind your livelihood. Leave behind your job, your career. Come follow me. For the second, he says, leave behind your family. Leave your dad right where he is in the boat and come follow me. Now, in, in the first, in, for the readers, the hearers of, of this um, story, they, they would have been far more interested in the brothers that left the father because leaving a family in a more traditional culture would have been probably the bigger deal. For us, that in Western culture, that's just kind of part of growing up. You grow up, you leave your family. We have different relationships with our family in the West than they, than they do in more traditional cultures. For us, we, we may have more of a problem, more, more discomfort with the fact that they left their careers. That Jesus effectively in this moment said, listen guys, I need you to prioritize me over your career. I should be more important than your job. You go, well, but, but Jesus wants me to be successful. Maybe. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe Jesus' idea of success is a little different than yours. Maybe it's radically different than yours. But the point is that no matter what vision Jesus has for your future, it's his. So I, I don't, I don't want to soft pedal this thing. Jesus says, come and follow me. And I'm not going to tell you what your future is going to look like. You got to trust me. You got to trust me that this is the kingdom and I am the king. And I'm powerful enough to bring about that kingdom. And I'm good enough that you should trust me. And you should put yourself in my hands that you should give yourself to me fully because I am strong enough to handle it. This is the purpose for which I am here. So Jesus says, give, give your all to me. Trust that I am a good God. And then what do we see Jesus do at the end of his story? If we are to be disciples of Jesus, following Jesus, we see Jesus willingly put himself in the hands of the Father, knowing that he is powerful to raise him from the dead, knowing that he is good to shepherd, to guide, to love, to care for him. So Jesus goes, I would never ask you to do what I wouldn't do myself. Follow me, follow my example. I, I will not only be the example, but I will be the very power by which you can follow me.
When you believe the gospel, there, there is inherent power that allows us to follow Jesus, to be a part of this new kingdom. So when, when Jesus came into Galilee and said, um, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the gospel, that word gospel meant something to those people. Jesus didn't invent the word gospel. It simply means in the Greek, good news or news that brings joy. And in fact, in Greek culture, it was a word used to describe some, some really earth-shattering news, some really important kind of culture-shaping news. There was, there was something beyond just kind of the daily news. Um, and Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, talks about it this way. He says, when Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battles of Marathon and Solness, they sent heralds or evangelists who proclaimed the good news to the cities. And they said this, we have fought for you and we have won. And now you're no longer slaves. You're free. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history. Something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. And it is that. It is that gospel that separates Christianity from every other religion, that separates Christianity from being a philosophy or, or even just a, a good kind of epic story, a, a hero story. That, that this is not um, 10 ways that you can have a better life. It's not a series of rules that if you can jump through enough hoops and get a good enough test on life, then you can graduate to something better. It's not general philosophy of the world. It's not a story where we go, that guy's great and we're motivated to be like him, but ultimately we don't have the tools to be like him. What separates Christianity from all of those other things is that it's news about what's been done. So everyone who's ever preached the good news, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, says effectively what those heralds said so many years ago. He has won the battle. He has won it for you. You are no longer slaves. You are free. Repent and believe the gospel. So if you are here tonight and, and you're not a Christian, never been a Christian, never thought about being a Christian, and you're just here because of a girl or whatever, um, I'm glad you're here. I, I would encourage you to look at whatever kingdom it is that, that you're striving after, that you, whatever king that you're putting your trust in, giving yourself to. Because this is, this is not a question of should you give yourself to something or not. The question is, who or what are you already giving yourself to? Every one of us is doing this. Without exception. The question is not, isn't should you. The question is, who are you? Who are you trusting? Who are you pursuing? Who are you giving yourself to? And does he or she or it or that idea have the power to accomplish what you hope it will accomplish? And is he or she or it or that idea good? Will it love you or will it use you for its ends? So I, I would invite you to, to just take some time. We're gonna have a time where you can do some kind of introspection and thought and meditation on, on what we've heard. But let, let, me, let me challenge you with this. I, I know that here tonight, as, as there has been every service today, 
I know that there are people in here whom God is drawing, God is calling, God is affecting you right now. The Holy Spirit is moving, and, and this is becoming real to you in ways that it never has. And, and in a few moments, we're, we're going to baptize some people. And there's some people here that are ready to be baptized or planning to be baptized. And then there's some of you here that are not planning to be baptized, but you need to. And it's happened at every service. Half a dozen people at every service have been baptized on the spot because God has moved, God has revealed his kingdom to them, and, he's, and, and people have gone, I want to be a part of that. That's something I never knew existed before. That's an option I never knew I had. I want that. And so I, I would invite you, I, I know there's going to be fear and there's going to be insecurity and you're going to have all kinds of reasons why not to. But I'm just telling you, this is too important. It's too big a deal to miss because you're insecure about the person next year. You're fearful about what if I'm wearing. We, we've got clothes. We've got extra clothes. We've got towels. You can wrap up 14 towels around yourself. I don't care. Don't miss this opportunity. It's too big. It's too important. If you're here and you're a Christian, you've been a Christian your whole life, and you're kind of going, this is a sweet gospel message. Here's the deal. You know what you need to do? You need to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and believing the gospel is not something you do once. It's something you do every day, every moment, every time our eyes stray from the prize and our hearts are tempted to long for a different future and trust a different king. We have to do what Jesus just said, repent and believe the gospel. Guys, Christians, we are almost single-handedly undoing the faith of people around us and casting doubt in people's hearts because they look at us and they go, you're no different. Why, why would I do that? I can do that without any of the guilt. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are a Christian, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good king. There is no doubt. And yours is the better kingdom. Yours is the kingdom that is secure. Yours is the kingdom that will bring about peace. Yours is the kingdom that will bring about justice. Yours is the only kingdom that can accomplish in total what all the other kingdoms promise to accomplish in pieces. And Jesus, you are the good king. You are the only king that is powerful enough to bring about the kingdom that we know is coming. You created this world. You sustain this world. You sustain our every breath. And you have promised to one day come and restore it. Right every wrong. Fix every broken thing and redeem your people. Jesus, we look forward to that day, but until that day, we will preach the gospel, the good news, the news that we know that your son came. He lived a perfect life. He died a criminal's death. And he rose victorious. God, I pray that you would unleash the Holy Spirit here tonight. 
that you would call us to yourself, both Christian and non-Christian, that we would repent and believe the gospel, that we would respond by taking communion, that we would respond by being baptized, making public declaration of the fact that we want to be a part of your kingdom and that you are our king. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.